FDBHDD is reminding Georgians to ask their doctor about alternatives to opioid pain medication. Alternatives such as over-the-counter medications and physical therapy can be used to manage pain. More information at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Um, It's really a pleasure to have all of you with us for another edition of the show today. A couple of quick notes. Um, If you have been watching us on TV, on GPB TV, on Friday nights during the legislative session. Uh, First of all, thank you for doing that. Uh, This is the last show that will, in fact, be on the TV side. We uh, all along had decided to do it during the session to uh, complement, supplement the work that Donna Lowry and her lawmakers team have been doing the rest of the week. But, of course, lawmakers will be with you uh, again on a Monday night as the session winds down to a finale. And uh, we will continue on radio where you can hear us at 9 in the morning and 2 every afternoon. Second of all, uh, we have some new theme music that some of you have noticed. And I am very happy to say it was composed by Jesse Neiswanger, our engineer, who is also a very talented composer. And we're excited to be able to have his music. Thanks for to those of you who have noticed it out there. Let's get to the panel. Uh, It's Friday, which means my partner from the AJC is Patricia Murphy, political reporter and columnist. She writes the Political Insider column that appears on Wednesdays and Sundays in the newspaper and also oversees the Jolt, the daily roundup of uh, items about politics in Georgia and beyond that you get at AJC.com. Patricia, how are you? I'm doing great. How are you, Bill? I'm fine. Thank you so much for being here. Lots to talk about as the legislative session comes to end. Some really interesting, I think, campaign news as well that we'll start talking about in just a minute. Um, Andrew Gillespie, professor of political science at Emory University, director of the James Weldon Johnson Institute for the Study of Race and Difference, is also with us. Hello, Andra. Good morning. How are you? I'm fine. Thanks for being here. You are also joined by Tammy Greer, professor of political science at Clark Atlanta University. Um, Tammy, who we always like to point out, has got a great work-life balance. Not only is she a fine professor of political science, but she has three triplets. She has triplets at home who she (laughs) deals with every single day. Hi, Tammy. How are your three girls? (laughs) They are amazing as always. Thank you, Bill, for asking. <laughs> okay. All right. Let's get right to it. Um, Patricia, um, we're down to the last days of the session. I said in the headlines of the show that the concealed carry bill is on track to pass. But but I, it, in fact, it has now gone through both the Senate and the House, right? Yes, that that bill has already gone through. That was one of Governor Brian Kim's very top priorities. It was Republicans' top priority as well, and that has now passed. So um, there's been obviously a lot of controversy around this measure. Um, the the proponents say that this just confirms the right that people have to carry weapons and to remove all the barriers. What, what are the critics? Uh, what have they been concerned about here? Well, the critics have been concerned about the fact that um, while this bill says that it is uh, it is still not lawful for people to carry guns if they have mental illness or past felony convictions, the permitting process in Georgia, which is required every five years to carry a concealed weapon, it's that permitting process that checks on people's mental status, checks on people's uh, felony convictions as well, anything that's happened within the last five years. So that permitting process will now go away. So once you uh, buy a firearm, it's yours to carry um, in a concealed manner here in Georgia, no matter what. If you have bought that out of state, um, you will be subject to that state's requirements. But here in Georgia, um, there will be no longer a permitting process for that. And um, critics say that is just um, the wrong way to make Georgia safer, that the way to make Georgia safer is fewer guns, not more guns. And um, certainly the debate in the Georgia House and the Georgia Senate, Republicans felt the exact opposite. They said 
and we hear this line all the time, the way to stop a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun. And this is uh, their opinion. It's uh, they've got the power and now they've got this bill passed for the governor to sign. Andra, this is clearly here in Georgia, as it is in states across the country, red meat for the base uh, in an election year. I, I want to read just a brief quote from Mandy Ballinger, the how, Republican in the House who uh, who uh, presented this bill. She said, quote, this bill just removes the fee that citizens in this state have to pay to be able to exercise their Second Amendment rights. And it's the last part of that fra- that sentence that I'm interested in. This is the ongoing debate that, you know, and we hear Republicans use that line all the time, our Second Amendment right. And yet there is great question about whether, in fact, that's what the founders had in mind in the Second Amendment in the first place, whether it really was intended to give all of us the right to carry weapons. Well, I mean, you know, the Second Amendment right is is predicated on this need to form militias when necessary, which was definitely something that was probably apparent and plausible, you know, in the late 18th century uh, when, when this was written. Uh, the question is, is that we have evolved, but Part of the reason why our gun culture looks so different from most of the industrialized world and part of the reason why we have such high uh, homicide rates uh, compared to the rest of the world is because of the fact that we can't get rid of guns. And the Supreme Court within the last decade or, or decade and a half has made sure that this is actually incorporated so that it's not just the federal government that could uh, that can't restrict your right to own guns, but it's also state and local government that's now restricted from being able to do so. And so this has become a talking point for Republicans. Um, it's especially become a talking point as the NRA was very successful in actually being able to lobby um, to make sure that it became a litmus test for Republican uh, candidates in the state. And it's coming in a moment right now where, one, people are concerned about crime. um, And so people do see guns as a preemptive way to protect themselves and their families from crime. But also this idea of a militia, like we've seen this actually been used as we have seen the Ukrainian crisis unfold. So some people are like, if something like this were to come to the United States, we might have to take up arms in the same way that we have watched Ukrainians who normally wouldn't be carrying guns walking around with nine millimeters or AR-15s because they have to defend themselves against Russian invaders. So, you know, this is uh, one of those things that, uh, you know, is one of those big sticking points in American culture. And because it was written down, it's really hard for us to get away from that. So I doubt we'll be like the UK is and, and, you know, basically banning guns for most civilians. Yeah. Uh, Tammy, Democrats have guns, too. This is not, you know, this issue may be a partisan one as it went through the legislature, but the gun ownership is not uh, partisan at all. Uh, But there are people who see a certain irony in the fact that Republicans in Georgia have kind of two messages right now. One is more people ought to have the right to carry uh, guns without obstacles, without having to pay a fee, without going through a permitting process. And oh, by the way, crime in our streets is out of control and we've got to do something about it. Right. And let's not for, um, let's remember that there's also a component of um, what police officers have done in other states um, when you have someone who is not white carrying a firearm and the danger then that ensues, even if that individual um, is legally and lawfully carrying that firearm. And so you can have situations where you have legal um, persons, um, black and brown, carrying firearms and then can be viewed as a threat. And then you have excessive force used on those individuals. Um, and then, you know, coming to the situation of the can, this almost like um, like we're in the wild, wild west where everyone has a firearm. And so who's the good guy to Patricia's point, right? Who's the good guy and who's the bad guy if all these folks have firearms and then we're not having, you know, a proper process around to ensure that someone who, you know, may not have been convicted of a felony or domestic violence once the gun was initially um, uh, ish, um, purchased, but then after such time that takes place. And so are we really having a clear process um, for guns to be in all of these different places? And 
or are we just having knee-jerk reactions because it's midterm elections? So I think we um, really have to, you know, look at it from a holistic perspective and not just, you know, self. Uh, Patricia, uh, let's put this in a political context even more uh, uh, firmly. Um, This fits into what you wrote your column that will appear in the Sunday paper but is already online today uh, about, which is this was a showcase measure for uh, Brian Kemp this year. And you say in your column that he has gotten, as he runs for re-election, virtually everything he wanted in this session of the legislature. And given that he's got a primary challenge from David Perdue, he gets to spend the next 40 days signing one bill after another in which he can take credit for accomplishing things that he believes Republicans really care about. It really gives him even more of an edge over David Perdue, doesn't it? It really does. And something that I have been struck by watching this governor who laid out all of his priorities at the very beginning of the session at exit issues and in his state of the state address. If you go through that list of each measure he said he wanted to pass, almost all of those have passed. And it's not just because this Republican legislature thinks he's great or they are all personally loyal to Brian Kemp. That is not the case. A lot of these members um, also have Republican primaries coming up. And the ones who don't have a significant Republican primary are then going to go into a general election. He's got Republicans with very similar political dynamics to deal with. And so he has put forward an issue and a set of issues and an agenda um, that naturally aligns with those Republicans. And a lot of these are Trump supporters. And so my question coming in um, to this legislative session, will that pro-Donald Trump um, pack in the House and Senate, will that become a cabal, like an anti-Kemp cabal to bring him down from the inside out? And that just has not materialized at all because he put forward conservative issues with a few also uh, kind of issues that are going to play very well in November, put those forward, and he's got a legislature that wants to move on all of those. They're also very conservative, and others need to get elected in November as well. So it, it aligned very well for Kemp, and it was quite strategic on his part as well. Uh, If you don't mind me reading back to you some of your words from that column, you say that the governor pitched a buffet of hot-button school issues uh, that he puts under the umbrella of parents' rights, Um, mask mandates, online school, and more parent activists sent Republicans into this session with marching orders, and most of those demands are now in legislation headed toward or across the finish line. I I guess I didn't pick the right graph to read from that, but why don't you go ahead and tell us some of the things that he accomplished that you think will serve him well in the primary. So obviously constitutional carry will be a huge piece that was pushed very hard by Second Amendment activists here in the state and frankly all around the country. Um, A lot of those school hot button issues, um, definitely he passed a bill to give parents the option to opt out of mask mandates in public schools and had a huge signing ceremony with lots of other Republicans standing right alongside him. These are members whose parents during the pandemic were coming to them, parents in their district, emailing them along with the school board saying, I don't want my kids to be wearing masks. I don't want, and and also, by the way, I've been seeing the curriculum and I want that to change too. And I want to tell you this other thing. And so a lot of this was driven by parent activists in districts pushing their own state lawmakers. And Kemp has been responsive to that. And in that way, this legislature was more than happy to sign on to that and push it through as well. Um, Some pieces that have uh, not gotten quite across the finish line, uh, the bill about transgender sports, that just might be, a little too hot to handle, especially in the state house. Um, but some measures that are going to be also very popular, um, tax refunds that the governor talked about at the beginning of the session, those have passed. Salary increases for teachers, those have passed. And a $5,000 salary increase for all state employees, that's going to play well in November as well as in the general election if he gets that far. Um, So, Tammy, uh, as always, the question here is, as Patricia lays out the uh, Republican agenda that that Kemp was able to accomplish here, which, by the way, is based on 
a national template at this point. These are the same issues that Republicans across the country are running on, in which Glenn Youngkin in Virginia uh, was able to uh, rally, have people rally around to uh, give him the governorship there. Um, but as always, the question becomes, if you can win a primary on these issues, can you, in fact, win a general election on many of these issues, Tammy? Right. And so I find it um, interesting when we bring up Virginia, um, perhaps part of Yunkin's uh, victory was the lack of when it came to McAuliffe's response. Right. His response didn't seem to flip it like he didn't take it seriously. And I hope that well, one would hope um, to have a competitive two party system here in Georgia, that you would have the opposing party to be more thoughtful in their responses. It depends on, to your question, Bill, how far to the corners um, do those candidates go in the primaries? If they go so far to the right, um, then they may not be able to recover, especially as um, in Georgia, even though the districts still favor um, a Republican-leaning um, official, uh, you still have some mixture that is moving into these districts. So if you go so far to the right, can you then pivot to move toward the center um, so that you won't have the margins or you could have the margins uh, of victory um, in the general election? And does the opponent have a, a thoughtful comeback that takes in consideration the concerns of the voters um, who may be listening to that, that individual on the other side? Andra? Um. So, you know, I, I do think that there would be a question about for a lot of these races, if it, if candidates that are more on the extreme end up winning the nominations, how palatable they're going to be. The I think what Republicans are, are strategizing on is that some of those voters who in 2020 may have been turned off by the excesses of Donald Trump uh, were appalled by the, the handling of, of, of the covid crisis at their core are not dyed in the wool liberals um, and are people who, uh, you know, if you activate their anger, tap into their resentments and their prejudices, might actually be willing to come back and vote Republican in this election. That that was an outlier election that had more to do mm -hmm. with the very strong personality mm -hmm. at the top of the ticket and didn't necessarily have to do with Republican principles. And so it's a different spin on pragmatism. And we're seeing Stacey Abrams trying to be more pragmatic about talking about those bread and butter issues that Democratic strategists point out play very well um, in middle America. Um, and so they're going on the other side that are where people are like, you know, I'm, I, you know, I, I understand that America's modernizing, but I don't want to mo it to modernize too fast or there are things that I don't agree with. And so I'm not necessarily going to put Democrats in charge who might take a more laissez faire attitude towards that. Oh, by the way, um, Andrew, while the ball's in your court, I, I think it's interesting that Patricia mentioned that uh, the bill transgender sports bill, uh, she said may have been too hot. Uh, to for this session would really could have been a, a problem. I do think what's interesting about that, Andre, is to point out that conservative Republican governors in two states, Utah and Indiana, who would have lined up on most of all of these other hot button issues with Kemp, they both vetoed the transgender bills in, uh, in their states. Um, so it really proves Patricia's point that maybe Republicans in, are not quite ready to go that far uh, right now. On some issues, I mean, I think in, in you know in instances where this has come up, my understanding is Utah and Patricia correct me if I'm wrong, Arkansas, where some of these transgender bills have come up, the Republican governor vetoes it, the Republican state legislature then overrides yeah. the veto. So it gives these individual legislators who might have progressive political ambitions cover to say, hey, I didn't support that back in the day, even though they knew full well that their attempt at vetoing the bill would be futile. Patricia. Yeah, I, what what Andra says is exactly right. We've got almost a <clears throat> excuse me a flipped dynamic here in Georgia, in that the governor put this forward in his state of the state address and framed it as fairness and girls sports. But what I'm hearing over in the state house is that there's real concern about the effect this would have on transgender students, not necessarily those who are playing sports, but just those who are in Georgia and what message. Does 
the scent of them and to their parents. There are as certainly there's at least one member of the General Assembly on the House side who has a transgender child. Um, the members are aware of that. And I think there is a sensitivity to this on the House side that I'm hearing. I don't know that in an election year that will absolutely derail this, but it certainly is part of the reason that it hasn't gotten over the, the finish line just yet. Um, all right. Um, l- let's talk about the governor's race from the Purdue perspective. Um, we, we've all agreed that Brian Kemp comes out of this legislative session with a lot of uh, ammunition under his belt to win the primary against David uh, Purdue. Uh, Patricia, the other day, uh, Donald Trump did an interview with One America News, his favorite network or one of his favorite networks. And this is what he said about David Perdue and his run for governor. Records, hundreds and hundreds to like two or three. Yeah. And it's very important to me, you know, that and I endorse a lot of people that are long shots. Look, in uh, we're fighting a governor who's done a very poor job in Georgia and a horrible job on the election. And hopefully David Perdue is going to win. I mean, that's you know, these are not sure things. And. If I lose one along the way, which you have to, right? They're going to say this was a humiliating experience. They'll make it like I could be 100 wins and one loss, and they'd make it sound like this is a humiliating. These are really dishonest people. Patricia, backing away from David Perdue? Uh, Sounds like he's hedging his bets just a little bit here in Georgia, which is just an incredible sight to see. When he started this in the first place, he got David Perdue to run against Brian Kemp. And now here he is backing off and say, well, you know, I might back 100 winners and maybe a loser or two. You do not want to be uh, in the David Perdue camp right now with Donald Trump backing off of your candidacy because, and I'll tell you why, I was in Fayetteville with David Perdue earlier this week to see how uh, voters down there were reacting to him. And they are there to see him because of Donald Trump. I talked to a woman who said, you know, I used to not like David Perdue. I really thought he was a rhino, but then I realized now he's just like Donald Trump. So if Donald Trump backs off of his support and takes away the single rationale for David Perdue to be running in this race, he does not have a race anymore. And there is a kind of a cautionary tale over in Alabama where Donald Trump rescinded his endorsement for Mo, for more, excuse me, for Mo, for Mo Brooks. It's harder to say than you think um, uh, because Mo Brooks, who is running for the Alabama Senate seat over there, said he'd rather talk about the next election than the last election. And for Donald Trump, that was all of the disloyalty he needed to see took away that endorsement, snapped it right back. And so every Donald Trump endorsee around the country has really had sort of the fear of Trump put into them. And they know they can't live without that endorsement. So David Perdue is going to have to continue to hit the gas toward Trump, toward the right, um, and really pull himself a little bit further away from some of those Republican primary voters who might not be on board with Donald Trump, but do want somebody who can win in November. Yeah. um, You know, Tammy, um, the Perdue campaign uh, I think has believed that uh, one of the reasons he's uh, lagging behind Brian Kemp in the polls that have been taken of this race has to do with the fact that people, Republican voters, didn't know that he was endorsed by Donald Trump. Um, and now they do. Trump was in Georgia, as we all know, last Saturday night and uh, uh, really rallied the crowd around uh, David Perdue. So there's no longer any reason why Republicans shouldn't know that uh, Trump had supported, has supported Purdue. So now this statement from Trump comes at the worst time possible for the Purdue campaign. Right. It's it's almost as if, hey, I thought we were friends and now we're not anymore. And I, I just got that memo. Um, and what does it do to the Purdue camp in terms of their messaging and their strategy? What does it do to people, as Patricia said, who are on the fence uh, or were on the fence with him and are now saying, "Okay, so he's not a rhino because Trump's with him. But now Trump is saying this. So maybe I'm not going to go with him. Um, It's very fascinating to see how Republicans are tying themselves so closely to the former president for the primary election. The question, though, that I have as a political scientist is what happens in the general election when you have a growing electorate here in Georgia 
who are not as um, conservative as Georgia once had been, um, and you have a diversification going on. What does that mean in the general election? And then what does that do to the Republican Party as a whole long term in Georgia um, if we continue to have such candidates? Andra? So there is the R-rated way I can say this, so I'll say it the PG way. This is Lucy <laughs> with the football people. I don't understand why anybody is surprised that this has happened, but I think that this does actually shed light on what Donald Trump's motivations are in making endorsements. Um, it wasn't strategic. This was personal. And because it was personal, he can't back off of it. If uh, if Trump had won Georgia by the margins with which he won Alabama, first of all, David Perdue wouldn't have gotten into to the race. He'd probably still be senator. Um, but even if he were looking for a second act um, and had gotten Donald Trump's endorsement and he was performing badly, Donald Trump would have backed off of it. But because this one was super personal um, and because he had doubled and tripled and quadrupled down on his contempt for Brian Kemp, he can't completely do a 180. So he's now decided to hedge his bets and is like, you know, a 99% win rate is is better, you know, is, is perfectly fine. And actually, in the grand scheme of things, I get that. But again, I, I just don't think that there's any strategy here. And people are kissing the rings when they have their own political resources to somebody who is a narcissist, a bully, and somebody who doesn't care about them. But yet you feel the need to kiss the ring, though, for many of you. Um, you've held office for a long period of time. Just think about that. Um, and then perhaps, you know, you might want to consider sort of how seriously you take uh, you take Donald Trump. Before we go to a break, Patricia, you see a very different David Perdue out on the campaign trail uh, today than the one who was running for re-election to his Senate seat. What do you mean by that? Yeah, it was so interesting to see David Perdue. Um, when I covered him in 2020, he was exhausted, grumpy, not very nice, didn't talk to reporters, didn't talk to many voters. <laughs> it was really strange by the end. Um, and he has really, uh, he really has turned that around. He meets with uh, reporters. He uh, had a press gaggle right after this event. He's been doing lots of events and he tells us where he's going. And he did not do that in 2020. Mm -hmm. So it's a much more open campaign that he's running. Um, I think he understood that not debating, not talking to reporters was not helpful. We see, we see a replay of that and Herschel Walker, and we can get to that later. But uh, Purdue was very different. He was um, quite charming. He was um, still very formally dressed. He had lost the jeans jacket. It was a little bit more authentic, I think, to him as a CEO and not a good old boy as he was kind of portraying himself before. Um, and he uh, seemed to really be enjoying himself a lot more on the trail. And so that was a, uh, that's just, that is a much more positive turn for David Purdue. Ironically, this campaign is a little bit of a heavier lift, but he's doing it in a way that at least seems more enjoyable to him personally. And, re and voters down there were reacting to it well as well. Okay. Um, thank you, uh, all of you, for a great start to the show today. We're going to get to our first break. Patricia just mentioned Herschel Walker. There's some really interesting news about Herschel Walker and uh, people who are lining up against him right now. We're going to get to that more after these messages. Tammy Greer of Clark Atlanta University, Andrew Gillespie of Emory, uh, join me along with Patricia Murphy, political columnist and reporter for the AJC. Uh, Patricia Politico dropped what I thought was a fascinating report this morning. They are reporting that um, we all know that Herschel Walker is by far the front runner in the uh, GOP race for uh, United States Senate. Uh, Gary Black, Latham Sadler, Kelvin King struggling to get any traction whatsoever. And it looks like Herschel Walker's had a free ride, going to have a free ride all the way to the primary. But what Politico is reporting, Patricia, is that there are two PACs out there, Republican PACs, that have decided they're going to spend, according to Politico, millions of dollars um, attacking Herschel Walker. Their theory is that um, the dirty laundry that Walker is carrying around with him um, may has so far not been exposed as widely as it should be, and that if he becomes the nominee, um, Democrats will have the opportunity to do that um, and beat him in a general election. 
and one last uh, point, and then I'll turn it over to you. Um, they don't believe they can beat Herschel Walker with these ads, but they think they can force him into a runoff and therefore further expose um, the things about him that will hurt him in a general. Patricia? Yes, it's been the strategy all along for the other four Republican candidates running against Herschel Walker to just get into a runoff against him and make it a one-on-one race. Um, That's the strategy of every candidate in Georgia, by the way. Um, They have not been able to dent Herschel Walker's appeal really in any meaningful way at all. And that is despite reams of press accounts coming out about Herschel Walker's past, his um, multiple police reports with his wife, um, calling police because he had held a gun to her head, um, because he had threatened her life. Um, tons of information has come out about him. It has not really stuck. Part of that is because um, there is just a level of affection in that Republican base for Herschel Walker that I'm not convinced can be dented by press reports. Um, the other reason is because these candidates do not have a lot of money. They've spent no money in attack ads against Herschel Walker. And so anybody with his name ID with no money being spent against him is going to start high and stay high. He started at 70%. He stayed up about 60% between 60 and 70 the entire time. The rationale behind this, uh, very quickly, uh, we hear from Gary Black's campaign, is that when they do polling and tell voters at the same time, did you know about these police reports? Did you know about his threats against his wife and other women? his support among those voters drops quickly. Um, We have to see if these PACs actually spend their money. I have to tell you, that's what we need to see first. They're saying they're going to spend the money. We need to send them. We need to see the money spent and see if it really does dent his support. Right now, he's got a level of support. The the applause alone at that Trump rally beyond anything that almost even Donald Trump got. There's a it's it will be very hard for these candidates to do it. But if they spend the money, um, that's what they need to do to try and make it happen. Yeah, I'm glad you said we'll see if they're going to spend the money. I mean, we're we're assuming that the report from Politico is accurate. That's why I said that Politico is saying they're going to spend millions. We'll uh, see if they can, in fact, do that. Um, Andra, Gary Black, the article quotes him at an event uh, he was at in, um, I think, Putnam County. Uh, Black uh, said what he's saying at a lot of stops. Folks, he can't win in November. The baggage is too heavy. It'll never happen. And then he goes on and says, let the Democrats pour $140 million uh, into the uh, domestic violence uh, uh, allegations and his threats to have shootouts with police. Um, we need to have that discussion right now, not in the general, is what he's saying, Andra. So I, I agree with Gary Black, um, and, and I understand his frustration, um, and I don't fault him for trying to take Herschel Walker down a peg with this. I think the open question is whether or not this is going to be effective. Based on what Patricia has said in her conversations with folks in the Black campaign, what I suspect their polling is telling them is that they did some message testing and they had some pre- and post-test things going on in that survey. And I think the bigger question is, is that, okay, once you tell people, they immediately start to change their minds. But what does that look like a week later, two weeks later? Mm. Um, and so typically political pollsters don't do things like panel surveys where they go back and they talk to the same people a couple of weeks later. Here, that type of research design would actually be really, really effective to see what it is. That being said, I think that Herschel Walker's appeal is the politics of personality. And so he's able to sort of draw on that and his celebrity. And people may actually be willing to forgive and overlook that the same way they did for Donald Trump. And we also cannot discount the ways that when we're playing into resentment, we talk an awful lot about race. What is less studied is how gender resentments and social dominance orientation, which is not just about people of color um, or LGBTQ people kind of coming into positions of prominence in society, but it's also about, uh, you know, traditional gender roles changing. Um, And so there may be people who still kind of hold some sexist views who might actually be willing to kind of discount that or to say that that stuff happened 20 years ago. And so that's not necessarily the Herschel Walker that we see today. Tammy? The politics of redemption, right? Um, so uh, not only that, but to um, to first to go back to your quote, Bill, when you quoted um, Gary Black, it's interesting. You know, you want to put it on all on the Democrats to put in monies um, 
when it comes to the domestic violence um, illumination, um, rather than the the GOP backed um, PACs that are actually doing it. So it's interesting to go ahead and to put it off on the other political party. Um, I agree. Um, you have Donald Trump. A slew of information came out about Donald Trump before the election, albeit you know very very late, um, and it did nothing. Um, it actually helped to solidify. Um, groups of folks who have traditionalistic um, a viewpoint of gender roles and, you know, boys will be boys, men will be men type of mentality. So um, I don't see that, that that being an issue for Herschel Walker on top of um, his uh, status uh, in iconic um, space uh, as a, um, you know, football hero here in Georgia. Um, so you have all of these different components that add to his personality, that add to the, his favor. And so there probably is a great deal of people who will be, you know, th those um, good Christians and forgive and say, you know, that was his past. He's, he's learned from it. He's grown. Look at what he's doing now. And so, you know, people make mistakes and, and he's redeemed himself. And so why not give him a second chance? And that probably will go into the rationale of individuals, you know, who have that forgiveness mentality um, when it comes to certain people in politics. Uh, Patricia, before we leave uh, the subject of Herschel Walker and for that matter, Donald Trump and his uh, rally here in uh, Georgia last Saturday night, I think I'm correct. And you'll, you'll tell me if I'm not. All of the other Republican candidates who were at that rally on the stage at one point or another with Trump, all of whom had been endorsed by Trump, all of them, including David Perdue, who went further than ever before, apparently, in talking about the fake election of 2020, claiming he's going to go prosecute those who uh, uh, were responsible for fraud in the election here. All of them went there except Herschel Walker, right? That's right. Herschel Walker doesn't need to do that. He's already got <laughs> these Donald Trump supporters with him. The I cannot reiterate how loud the applause was. And then people started doing the like the UGA barking sound um, after he was introduced. He's a superstar at that base. It almost doesn't matter what he says or does. He doesn't have to be as extreme as Trump to keep those Trump voters on his side. I will tell you what I heard in Fayetteville that surprised me. Donald Trump and David Perdue supporters didn't like that Herschel Walker is not talking to the press and is not planning to do debates with the GOP. Mm. And that came back to me as saying, what is he hiding and what is he afraid of? And so there is a level of nervousness in the grassroots. Um, and these are sophisticated voters. These are people who watch elections who say, is he going to be able to handle it against Raphael Warnock if he can't even handle somebody, you know, like a Gary Black or Latham Sadler? What is he afraid of? And so they're worried that there is a bombshell waiting for uh, Republicans on the other side of this GOP primary that they're not going to be able to take care of um, once he faces uh, Raphael Warnock in the general election. And I, I found that surprising and important. All right, let's do this. Let's get our final break of the show out of the way and come back with more on today's Political Rewind. Patricia Murphy, uh, the jolt is out uh, uh, this morning, and the lead item in it is pretty interesting. I just want to give you a second to talk about it. Uh, Sonny Perdue starts his job as chancellor of the university system of Georgia uh, today, I guess. And uh, you uncovered his, um, or you didn't, but uh, it, you have gotten a hold of from Brian Bannon, who sort of sees himself as a citizen journalist, a copy of the resume and the cover letter that Purdue submitted to the Board of Regents to get the job. Just give us a couple of the highlights from uh, that. Uh, yeah, a couple of the highlights are uh, that it's almost the first we've heard about how uh, Sonny Perdue got the job. He did not go to Brian Kemp saying he wanted the job. Apparently, Brian Kemp went to him. And so he writes that in his cover letter and saying, I wouldn't say I exactly, quote, wanted this job or pursued it. <laughs> he said, but when I was asked about it and asked if I would be interested, I did tell them I just wanted the best chancellor out there. Lo and behold, uh, now <laughs> Brian Kemp thinks he is the best person out there for this job. It pays $524,000 a year, which is pretty good money. 
Um, it's more than the governor makes. Uh, and also uh, the way he presented his own public service, I found really fascinating. And, and literally it's his resume, like Sonny Purdue has a resume because you had to submit it for this job. Um, and under public service, he includes um, the work that he did to put Republicans in control of the state house in Georgia, and also to put uh, 33 Republican governors in charge of states right now. Although we did note that he was head of the uh, Republican Governors Association um, and came out with only 21 Republican governors after his term. So I didn't want to accuse him of padding his resume, but that wasn't exactly accurate. Um, but it uh, it's just one of the very few insights we have into how and why he wants this job. And I think that that is something that we need to know more about and that Georgians need to know more about. This is an incredibly important job. It oversees the entire university system. And it's at a time that is really politically fraught for classrooms, for teachers, administrators. Um, every hot button social issue is finding its way into classrooms right now. And so um, what teachers can teach, who they can teach, who can be on which sports teams, a lot of that will end up in Sonny Purdue's hands. And so we think it's important to know more about why he wanted the job and what he's going to do on the role. And, and we'll start to find that out now because it's his first day on the job. Yeah, I think one of the most interesting things about the resume, and you alluded to it really, is uh, he didn't talk about when he was governor about the policies that he put in place, at least not what you've quoted in, in your uh, uh, jolt items about it. But instead, uh, he talks about the fact that he defeated the incumbent governor under public service, yeah. <laughs> uh, despite being outspent $20 million to $3 million. He also says in, under public service that he led the Georgia Republican Party out of decades in the minority. Uh, <laughs> it's an interesting way to frame your uh, public policy. Yes, <laughs> so. especially for a job that has typically been nonpartisan. Yeah, so exactly. we will see how Sonny Purdue fares in that look, uh, yeah. job. Look, um, Andra, and then Tammy, if you want, look, we all hope that Sonny Perdue, in fact, performs really well as chancellor. It's too important a job uh, for us not to wish him well in it. Uh, but he goes into it under at least certain clouds that people are concerned about. Right, Andra? Well, I mean, so we wish him well. And it was funny. I, I looked through, uh, as he called it, a bio, not a CV or a resume um, and the cover letter. And so, you know, I, I've actually been on high level administrative search committees where, you know, people who are, you know, have outstanding credentials follow the, the, the stated format. So I found it very odd uh, that 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 uh, Governor Secretary Purdue, now Chancellor Purdue, um, hadn't um, uh, didn't, didn't use like formal letterhead, like, you know, didn't start off with a salutation in his cover letter. Um, the CV started to look a little bit more like a CV, but it didn't also in the same way, which was also kind of um, interesting. And there was a lot of like long extended prose where I think most people, when they see CVs or resumes, is, is used to seeing lots of bullet points. Um, and, and, and I think the irony is, is that when People were applying to be a senator to replace Johnny Isaacson, the seat uh, that Kelly Loeffler held for a year. People, including members of Congress, people who are very well known, followed the standard resume format. Um, and Purdue didn't do it in this particular instance. And I thought if I were sort of looking at this in the searches and I've been on a search for a provost, I've been on a search for a dean before, um, and it wasn't formatted properly and it was a lot of tooting your own horn and it had no publications on it, we would probably be like, next, all right, let me go look at look at the next one. So it was just very interesting. Some of that is generational. So I'm sure that, you know, my millennial colleagues will look at the way I format my resume and it's like, that's really antiquated. And then I look at the people who are, you know, 10, 20 years older than I am. And I'm like, why do you do it that way? And I saw some of those elements sort of in those resumes before. But I mean, you know, there was certainly some thoughtfulness there. There was substance there to be read. But again, you know, as an academic, I have questions about a non-academic running a higher education institution, um, you know, without a lot of experience. Though I will give Purdue credit for highlighting his work um, on the higher education committee when he was a state legislator. So I mean, that that was really important. And, and that seemed like it was tailored to this particular job. Uh, thank you for pointing that out. Um, all right. Um, let, let, let's move on instead of uh, continuing on that uh, line. Um, Tammy, I'll start with you on this one. Uh, it uh, the, um, the Justice Department 
uh, has now said that it is going to expand its investigation of all of the elements of the big lie uh, what followed the 2020 election, people who may be implicated in perpetuating that, interfering in how the election process played out in terms of the Electoral College and other things, um, they're going to expand it. And um, one of the things they're going to be looking at is the slates of essentially fake electors that were uh, created in a number of states, including Georgia, um, to give their electoral votes to Donald Trump, not to Joe Biden. And so, Tammy, what we know, and in fact, it was Greg Bluestein who was the one who broke this story when it happened. On the same day that the Biden electors were meeting at the state capitol to certify that Biden had been the winner of Georgia's election, Bluestein came across a group of Republicans led by GOP state party chairman David Schaefer who were forming their own group of electors uh, to certify, if they had the opportunity to, that Donald Trump was, in fact, uh, elected in the state of Georgia. That didn't happen. It didn't—nothing came of that. But DOJ is now looking at whether or not that was criminally—that uh, was criminal wrongdoing. Right. Um, and it's, it's interesting because I, I've seen some of these documents— that some of these fake electors have, you know, produced and signed, and, and at a glance they look authentic, right? Um, yet it goes to the, you know, falsification of government documents, right? Um, how was this not interference with a legal and lawful election? Mm. How was this not type to some type of um, voter fraud, right? So it has all of these elements to it, not just the fake electors. Um, it is also the the folks that aided in um, um, uh, putting money toward these that um, the January sixth rally. It goes to people who helped to spread the word um, through different types of avenues, um, and and it's in a it's a conspiracy, right? So legal legally, you know, this is a conspiracy. People work together to uh, commit some type of a, a legal act. In this case, it is fraud. So it is very interesting to see how far the DOJ goes when it comes to uh, this type of criminal activity <laughs> or alleged criminal activity um, by these individuals on this legal and lawful election that we are still talking about years after the current president you know, was inaugurated and has been in office. Um, I was just going to say one more uh, thing, Bill. Uh, some of... I really enjoy watching... Frank Luntz, when he does uh, post polling and when he does focus groups, right? And a lot of the uh, points that come across with the individuals that he has um, as part of these focus groups, um, you can see how the language that is being used by some of these elected officials, um, whether it is justifying, let's say, Herschel Walker's uh, behaviors or when it comes to January 6th, you can see how these words are repeated. And I think it's very important for us to pay close attention, not only to what the elected officials are saying, also what um, folks who are in you know, focus groups and everyday individuals, what they are saying, because it's, it's a mirror. And we have to find some type of way to start, you know, bringing in truth in some of these spaces. If not, I, I don't see how January 6th would not happen again. Um, Patricia, just to be clear about what DOJ uh, may have uh, to look at here is on the same day, I think it's December 14th, if, if I'm wrong, maybe you'll correct me. That, that the Biden electors sent off to the National Archives, which is where the certificate goes, their official certification that the Georgia election was won by Joe Biden. The Trump fake electors created the same kind of document, also sent it to the National Archives saying they were the certified electors, which is where they're vulnerable potentially for DOJ to look at criminal charges. Yeah, it's going to be really important to know what these electors were told when they participated mm -hmm. in this process. One of the electors who was based in Columbus said 
he was told this is kind of just a plan B in case the judicial process comes back and flips this election very quickly. And there were judicial challenges going on at the time, all of which have been thrown out. Um, he was told, well, we'll have this just in case. Um, others uh, may have been told something different. And we certainly know that there was an intention at other levels uh, to overturn the election by any means necessary and do it through um, a conspiracy, which has been charged for sedition. And so is this a part of that? Did the electors know that they were a part of that or were they told something different? And I think that's why it's important to have an investigation and find out more about the intent here. Um, David Schaefer has was deeply involved in the, the entire Stop the Steal effort from top to bottom. There were other members of the Georgia State Senate who were involved in that as well. Um, these electors, I think we need to know more about and know more about why they were there and what they were told. Um, it, it is going to be fat. You know, Patricia, I, I think about David Schaefer, who, of course, everybody thought was going to be the Republican nominee for lieutenant governor. He was <laughs> upset by Jeff Duncan in that race. And these are these alternative history uh, timelines. Had David Schaefer ended up winning the race for lieutenant governor and been the lieutenant governor now, he may still have been in the Trump camp. But you got to wonder how far how his career and his politics sort of changed after that really dramatic loss. Do you know what I mean? Well, and you also have to think, what if Jeff Duncan was not the lieutenant governor and it was yeah. David Schaefer? You know, Jeff Duncan played a big part in speaking out against the attempt to steal the Georgia election back from Joe Biden. He was on CNN being mocked by other Republicans for going on CNN, by the way. He was on Fox. He was on every channel available to say, this is not true. He also um, was a big part of putting down the effort to have a special session to draft new rules to be retroactive to the 2020 election. Um, and so what if it had been David Schaefer? What if we had the lieutenant governor saying, yes, everything Donald Trump is saying is true? I, that would, I think, have been a really meaningful difference. And it's um, it's a little scary to think about what yeah. would have happened instead of fight between the governor and lieutenant governor over that. With that, we have completely run out of time for today's edition of Political Rewind. Uh, Professor Andre Gillespie, uh, Professor Tammy Greer, Patricia Murphy, thank you for a really wonderful conversation on the show today. As we come to the end, if you're watching us on the TV version of our show, of this season's TV version of Political Rewind, I want to thank uh, the wonderful crew that has brought us uh, onto the TV side of things here, Dennis Buchanan, Alex Word, Jeff Bunk, Aaron Rothwell, James Turner, Matthew Wolf. I'm very grateful. And Regan Smith, thank you for the work that you've done. And, of course, Jesse Neiswanger, Natalie Mendenhall, Samber Mistaz, who will continue working with me on the radio version of Political Rewind, which you can hear at 9 and 2 every weekday and which you can also uh, listen to at gpb.org or on our Facebook page at GPB as well. That's it for us today, the end of another week at Political Rewind. Thank you so much for being with us. We'll see you again on Monday, the 40th day, the final day of the legislative session for 2022. I'm Bill Nygut. Until next week, take care and please stay healthy. Bye-bye. <laughs>